It's February 1926. Some members of the Church Board of Education want to close all its colleges and universities. But Elder John Whitsoe feels differently. I know the value in church schools in making a man. I think the church would make a great mistake if it did not maintain an institution of higher learning. The future of church education and the development of institutes are discussed next in chapter 17, Spared for Each Other. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. And today we are going to be discussing chapter 17 of Saints, Volume 3, Spared for Each Other. Joining us today, we have Casey Paul Griffiths, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, and Kenneth Godfrey, a historian who worked for the church education system in various capacities for 37 years. Thank you both for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Well, before we jump into the chapter, we'd just love to take a moment to hear from both of you. Would you be willing to share what were some of your thoughts as you read this chapter of Saints? I'll let Ken go first, and then I'll be happy to follow. Well, one thought I had, I've written down, it comes from Brother Benyon. In the towns and villages of the church, put on such a program that the boys cannot afford the time to loaf on the grocery corner, the garage concrete, or the pool hall cafeteria. You have to call whatever a boy or girl squanders hours aimlessly. The fellow who needs you most is the one who who is furthest from looking you up. And I think one of the reactions I had reading this chapter was how much the church is concerned about each individual, the lengths that they go to to provide for each individual, especially the youth. And then I think if you have a doubt regarding whether the church operates by revelation, the story of J. Wiley Sessions should put all those doubts aside because he's a most unlikely candidate to be able to father a Institute of Religion program that would last as long as it has lasted and produce the quality of teachers and students that it has. And so I was re-amazed with the hand of our Heavenly Father working upon Brother Nibley and working on the others in that early period as they created a wonderful Institute of Religion system. And my thoughts as reading the chapter was just absolute joy, uh, knowing that Wiley and Magdalene Sessions would be mentioned in a major history book. Sometimes we get the feeling that the history of the church is apostles and prophets, and that's it. And these are two incredible individuals who never really held high office in the church, who were teachers, essentially, and traveled from place to place doing what the Lord asked them to do. And it's just wonderful to know that these, I, I, there's nothing average about them, so I'm not going to use that word, but these maybe rank and file, maybe saints of the last wagon, to borrow President Clark's phrase, can get some recognition for the tremendous contributions that they made to the kingdom of God, contributions that still have an impact today. And then it's also a bit amazing that in that early first institute, he would have as one of his students a man who would grow up and be deemed the dean of Mormon history, the best historian, and Leonard Arrington, who came just a little later, but had this remarkable career and influence 
hundreds of history buffs and serious historians. And I think that includes me and you, Ken, right? Both of us benefited from Leonard Arrington, and Leonard Arrington did his first serious studies in church history at the Moscow Institute, which Wiley Sessions started. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And hopefully our other listeners and readers will enjoy the chapter and be able to take from it some of those important lessons that you've highlighted. Perhaps we could begin talking about the chapter by discussing the state of church education in the 1920s. So could you get us up to speed with what's going on with regards to the church and education and religious education at this point where the story begins? It's fair to say that the 1920s were a time of intense transformation for church education. Prior to the 1920s, the church had had its own educational system throughout the Intermountain West. There was a series of church academies, basically church-sponsored high schools, even church colleges beyond BYU, uh, Dixie State College, Snow College, Weber College, what was known as Ricks College, now BYU-Idaho. There was a college in Arizona. All these schools were owned and operated by the church, but it was getting to the point to where operating its own educational system while there was a public educational system was becoming burdensome. So in 1920, the head of the church educational system, who was Adam Benyon, and he's also supported by David O. McKay and John A. Widsow and a few others, made the decision to basically close all the church academies and transfer them to state control or just close them down outright, and instead shift to this system of supplementary religious education that had started the decade before called the seminary system. Now, when that happened, the church retained control over its colleges at Snow and Dixie and BYU and Ricks and College of Eastern Arizona. The idea was, well, if we can't control the educational system, we can train all the teachers in the educational system. But as the 1920s went on, and we generally think of the 1920s as the roaring 20s, but they were a difficult time in the Intermountain West. The church continued to struggle to support these universities and started to look for something that could do on a university level the same thing that the seminaries were doing on a secondary education level. I'll just mention one thing. This really isn't ancient history. When I was a student at Utah State University, I was a custodian, and one day I was cleaning a restroom, and just prior to the announcement that it was Thanksgiving time that we were going to have Adam S. Benyon as our speaker in a devotional at the university. And as I was cleaning this restroom, one of the doors opened and out walked Adam S. Benyon. And there was just me and him in the room, and he said to me, you must really want an education if you're willing to clean restrooms to get one. And I said, Brother Benyon, I really do want an education. And so here I am now, older than he was then, but we're not far removed from when all of this was happening. And uh, vestiges of this time period are still found throughout the West. Near where I grew up in Delta, Utah, in Hinckley, there's still the Church Academy building, still standing. The Hinckley Academy ran and was one of those schools that closed in 1920. 
where my parents grew up in Beaver, Utah, there were still people that were mad that Murdoch Academy, which was the church high school in that town had closed, and there's still one building for Murdoch Academy that's present there. So it was a tough transition, but it was basically the church acknowledging that they needed to do what they did best, which was provide religious education and allow a little bit more trust in the state to provide secular education. They wanted to work in partnership with the state instead of working parallel to them. Well, Casey and Kenneth, thank you so much. And Kenneth, I appreciate you saying that this is an ancient history. This wasn't very long ago, and we can still see the evidence of it all around us. And I appreciated learning a little bit more about the church education system. It's been a big part of my life, and it is where I met my husband. So fun fact. Um <laughs> But Casey, as we read this chapter, we find that the axe hovering over BYU and other church schools is a financial challenge that's just looming. Can you tell us anything about why it was becoming more and more expensive to provide church education? Yeah. First of all, we're used today to the church being financially solvent in the black. This is still in the decades following the end of plural marriage, where the church is trying to recover financially from the intense struggles they had with the U.S. government. As part of their struggles, they wanted their own education system. They wanted to be independent. And they're going through a transformation where the church, instead of trying to exist completely outside of society, is becoming integrated into it, but still maintaining its unique culture. So in 1912, the first seminary was launched at Granite High School. Thomas Yates is the first teacher. Just to follow up on Ken's point, this is an ancient history. Second seminary was launched in 1915 at Brigham City. The teacher was named Abel Rich. Before Abel Rich retired, he trained a guy named Boyd K. Packer as the seminary teacher. And there's this line of continuity that goes just up to a couple years removed from us. But by the 1920s, you had parents that were basically saying, we're paying taxes to pay for public education but you also want us to pay tuition for students to go to church academies. And a lot of church academies too were semi-boarding schools where the kids would leave for the year and be gone from their families. And that was expensive too. The Murdoch Academy, which was located in my parents' hometown, had kids come from all over and stay in town for a year away from their families. And that was obviously difficult. That wasn't the case with every church academy, but it was the case with several. And so there was this combined financial burden on the members of the church to pay taxes, which paid for public education, and to pay tuition, and sometimes to have their kids live away from them. And the church itself was having difficulty keeping up with the expenses. So in the early 1920s, Adam Benyon did an analysis where he stacked the cost to educate a seminary student. Remember, seminaries are basically the theology department right next to the high school versus educating a student at an academy. And the financial analysis was that it was 10 times cheaper to educate a seminary student and let them go to high school than it was to have a kid go to a church academy where the church paid for and provided for everything. And so at that point, it kind of became a thing that had its own momentum, where the leaders of the church realized what their real obligation was, was to provide religious education to help these young people develop faith. And they trusted the state to provide them with a good education. And there wasn't total agreement on that. There was a guy who was the former head of the Weber Academy named David O. McKay, 
who felt like you couldn't separate the secular and the spiritual. He would always quote President Brigham Young's statement that you shouldn't teach them multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. And President McKay felt like this was a pedagogical fallacy, that we needed to keep everything together. But financially, it was just becoming very difficult to do that. And the seminaries seemed to have presented a good solution where they could kind of have their cake and eat it too. I would just like to add to that. The church didn't hold back when it came to institutes. They wanted to have a presence that was substantial and probably be long-lasting and not just a temporary thing. That's absolutely right. And actually, the idea of building a nice institute was something that comes from Wiley Sessions and Magdalene Sessions, where Wiley Sessions would have his wife, Magdalene, pick out the furnishings, pick out the furniture, decorate the institute. And he had a saying that he wanted the institute to be the finest building on campus. And the intent was that it was supposed to be a home away from home for for Latter-day Saint students. Thank you for providing that extra context regarding the issues that the church was facing around this time. Well, I wonder if you could now tell us a little bit about the way that church education generally was managed and structured around this time. Well, a couple of things that were happening. Those involved were responsible in many ways for the curriculum. There wasn't a set curriculum that everyone had to follow. So there were certain individuals who were perceived as having the ability to write that were asked to produce some lessons so that the other teachers could use these lessons. Sometimes they went up Logan Canyon in the summer and had a cabin there, and they would just spend weeks in the summer producing these courses of study. And some of those are pretty good books. They were good scholars. You have a T. Edgar Lyon. Some of the best historians in the land, including Leonard Arrington, once said that T. Edgar Lyon had forgotten more history than most people knew. And you could have been a college professor and would walk across the street to hear a lecture from T. Edgar Lyon because you knew he knew more about the history of the church than most anyone else. And then you have a Lowell Benyon that first goes to Tucson and comes back to the University of Utah. And he was an influential figure, uh, spoke in general conference in the priesthood sessions and produced uh, textbooks that sound pretty good even today. And that's just to mention two individuals that I know something about. And I'll just close with this little statement. While I was mission president in Pennsylvania, I was interviewing a young man who had just graduated from Yale University's law school, having had his bachelor's degree at Yale also. And while I was talking to him, I just said to him, who was the best teacher you had in all of your years at Yale? And he said, by far, the greatest teacher I had at Yale was my institute instructor, Jeff Holland. When you think of the quality of some of those early teachers, both as teachers and writers, it's quite impressive. I think it's also fair to say, too, that even though there were some great scholars in general, during this time, they hired teachers that would connect with kids. It's a continuing story in the church that we're always worried about younger people, 15 to 25. And during this time period, there was a lot of worry that kids were going to college, 
and losing their faith in the gospel. In fact, Adam Benyon himself, when he was head of the church educational system, sat down and said, I might have lost my testimony when I was at the university if it hadn't been for two men that helped me. And the two men were Milton Benyon, who the School of Education at the University of Utah is named after, and James E. Talmadge. And so Adam Benyon and later Joseph F. Merrill, these are the two heads of the church educational system, are trying to find a way to link young people with seasoned spiritual mentors that can help them go to college and see how what they're learning in their secular studies can intersect with their spiritual testimony of the gospel and how the two don't conflict with each other. And the church was also wise enough to allow some flexibility on the part of institute of teachers, and you could offer a class on responses to difficult issues in Mormon history and appeal to some of the students that were having maybe some questions about these things, but we had the authority and authorization to offer some of those kinds of classes, and I remember one day I was jogging, and a man jogged towards me, and as he did so, he stopped me, and he started to talked to me and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, yesterday, I put my son on an airplane to go on his mission to France. He said, 10 years ago, I took your class on problems in LDS church history. And at the time I enrolled, I was seriously considering leaving the church. Then tears dripped off his chin and he said, Yesterday would never have happened if I had not had that class. And that's worth a lot of paychecks if you have just one of those experiences. And there were lots of institute teachers where those kinds of things happened to them. Well, Kenneth, thank you so much for sharing such a personal and meaningful experience. I think it really illustrates the effort and the thought that goes into the church education system really is valuable. And we see that when we read this chapter and we see it today. And I just think it's so interesting that these issues that the youth are facing, they weren't unique then, they're not unique now. I feel like we'll probably always have that desire to connect with the youth and to help them work through the questions that they have and the issues they're experiencing. So I'm just wondering at this time when there was some shifting in how CES was structured and managed, how well utilized was church education by members of the church around this time? Oh, I think it's fair to say it was really well utilized. The academy system was well attended. Again, that reaches a peak uh, right around 1912 when more students start attending public schools than church schools in the inner mountain west. But the seminary program takes off right after that. And it's fair to say that the seminaries and the colleges and schools that the church were operating were very, very effective in perpetuating the gospel and strengthening the church. But there were some disadvantages too. For instance, at a church school, whether it was a university, a college, or a high school, typically you didn't have a full-time religion teacher. So normally what would happen is, is your person that taught your religion class was a person who specialized in English or science or math or something like that, and then would teach a religion course on the side. So one of the unique things that's happening with the start of the seminary system in 1912 and then instituted in 1928 is you get this new class of teacher in the church, which is a full-time religious scholar. And this comes along at a point when the church needs some of these people. We've had great scholars up to this point, people like Orson Pratt and B.H. Roberts, 
But this is going to give rise to a generation of people like Sidney Sperry or Hugh Nibley who learn biblical studies, who learn ancient language, who learn about culture, and can start to use this uh, to not only expand our understanding of the scriptures, but to also defend the church from some of its detractors. A lot of the work that Saints does today to kind of familiarize church members with the complexities of church history start around this time when young scholars, mostly scholars that had been handpicked to start institute programs, would get degrees in higher education where they'd study things like the environment that the Word of Wisdom was received in. A guy named George Tanner, who becomes the head of the Moscow Institute for 20 years, does his thesis on health movements and how they linked up with the Word of Wisdom. That's something that we don't even think twice about today, but in the 1920s and 30s, people were attacking the church by saying, Joseph Smith didn't come up with the Word of Wisdom by inspiration. He was stealing from Sylvester Graham and other movements. Today, that's no big deal to us, but back then it could cause faith crises for people, and these institute directors were really intended to be the tip of the spear when it came to fighting back against the detractors of the church. Well, thank you for that extra insight. We've talked a little bit about the financial issues that the church was facing with regards to all of these different institutions that they had, but can you tell us about any other challenges that the church was dealing with with regards to church education? I think it's fair to say that this time in the 1920s is when the church is starting to expand outside of the traditional places it's been, in Utah and Idaho, the Intermountain Corridor, basically. And so there's the dilemma of you're raising your family outside of an area where there's a lot of church members, same experience that a kid would have at a church academy. The whole institute program started because there were two girls who had to attend school in Moscow, Idaho, which is Idaho, but it's pretty far away from church headquarters. It's about 12 hours away. And the Latter-day Saint influence at that university was nominal. And these girls are going to school, and then on Sunday, they're attending church in the local branch, which was held in the International Order of Oddfellows Hall. And they talked about having to sweep up the cigarette butts and the beer bottles before they had sacrament service. And so, understandably, there's a lot of anxiety among church leaders and parents about these students that are going to non-church schools and maybe losing their testimony because there's nobody there to help them navigate them through the difficulties that they face. And that carries over into a little later when there's a great expansion in early morning seminary and church growth in the church education just explodes when you start all of that. And so we're still growing and meeting people's needs and young people's needs especially. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that that philosophy is developed during this time. Seminaries and institutes, when it comes down to it, are really malleable. All you need is basically a classroom and a good teacher, and you can set up a program. Whereas if we had tried a more traditional approach of building a school everywhere, it, there probably still wouldn't be church education in places like Western Europe or Africa. But seminary and institute was basically, uh, you needed a space, you needed a teacher, you needed a set of students, and that allowed us to go wherever the church went. That's a great point. Thank you. Well, and you mentioned institutes, which we want to ask some specific questions about institutes. So to start out with, what can you tell us about Wiley Sessions? I love Wiley Sessions. First of all, before he starts the institute program in Moscow, he is mission president in South Africa. 
I ran into a guy who used to work at BYU named Richard Cowan. Richard Cowan interviewed Wiley Sessions back in the 1960s. So I actually have a voice recording of Wiley and Magdalene Sessions. Let's see. This is uh, June 29th, 1965. We're sitting in the home of Brother and Sister J. Wiley Sessions. Uh, Brother Sessions, it seems that you've had a rather varied career in church assignments of different sorts. Of course, I've been very interested in the fact that you were the first institute director in the church. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of how this assignment came about. Well, we came home middle September, not exactly, middle oh, September of 1926. We had been in a mission since late 1918. We came home. We had promised ourselves that we would not go back into educational work. We knew we were broke. We had less than we had when we were married. We had nothing. We had uh -huh. nothing. I wrote, had written and said that I wanted to go back into the agricultural work and was going with the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company. I was to be the field man for Idaho, and I was thrilled with it. Mm. We came home, to, I came back to Salt Lake City. All of our baggage was in the storeroom down at the station. We didn't unpack it. We didn't know what we were going to do. We thought we were going to Idaho Falls, Idaho, or somewhere there, as our assignment would come. Brother George Albert Smith, Brother Charlie Nibley, and uh, several others were just uh, for us, and we thought it was all fixed. And I went back to the First Presidency again. I went back thinking, now I'll get the assignment, we'll just assign our baggage to wherever we're going. Right in the middle of a sentence, Charles Nibley had just been so positive in my having this job. And President Grant never had been. He was not enthusiastic about it at all in the several interviews we'd had. And right in the middle of a sentence almost, Charlie Nibley looked up and said, Heber, we're making a mistake. I haven't felt very good about Brother Sessions going into the sugar business. He may not like it. <laughs> There's something else for him. And Nibley said, why? He's worked for the University of Idaho. He knows the, uh, the president, he knows the students, and he knows Idaho. He's the man to send up the University of Idaho to take care of our boys and girls that are up there and to see what the church ought to do for our students who are attending state universities. They were losing too many of the students mm -hmm. at the University of Idaho. I said to President Grant, I said, oh, no, brother, no. I said, here, I've been home now. It's just 12 days today since we arrived for more than seven years in the mission system. Are you calling me on another mission? President Grant chuckled and said, no, no, brother Sessions. We're just offering you a wonderful professional opportunity. <laughs> Run upstairs and talk to the church superintendent, brother Benyon and then come back and see us about 3 o'clock. And I went, crying nearly all the way. I didn't want to do it. But just a few days later, our baggage was checked to Moscow, Idaho, <laughs> and we went to Moscow, Idaho. And there started the LDS Institutes of Religion. 
the thing you noticed about listening to him was that he was always about five seconds away from cracking a joke or laughing. Like he was just constantly sharing humor and always making a joke about his circumstances, was incredibly humble. And that comes through in, in the reminiscences that he writes, where he just kind of always presented himself as the person that was in the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> and bounced from adventure to adventure. I'll have to admit that I suffered from envy when I read your footnote that you had that recording because he was a legend when I first started in CES. Uh, you always heard the old timers say something about him. And uh, I grew up with a very good opinion of what he must have been really like. There's this story that all airline pilots talk like Chuck Yeager, the first guy that broke the sound barrier, who has this thick Texas accent. But listening to Wiley Sessions, I think all seminary and institute teachers talk like Wiley Sessions. Like they're just always looking for the humorous angle and this is funny and we're giggling at this. And you can just see this lightness that must have been really, really appealing about him. So Wiley arrives in Moscow, Idaho, and he's not exactly an educator in the sense of having a professional teaching background. Yeah, he's a farmer and a missionary, basically, at this point in his life. And we read about him taking some classes to try and get acclimatized and to try and get his foot in the door with some of these individuals. I wonder, could you tell us about the difficulties that Wiley would have faced in terms of getting the Institute classes accredited with the university? How much of a challenge was this going to be? Indications are it was quite a challenge. Now, there were a handful of faculty at the university that were Latter-day Saints. Those were some of the people that were contacting the First Presidency and asking Wiley to come. But there was also a ministerial association. <laughs> In fact, an organization of local ministers, local business people who were appointed to watch Wiley Sessions and make sure that he didn't, in quotes, Mormonize the university. So they were worried that this was a stealth operation to turn the University of Idaho into a church school. I don't know why they were worried about that. There's, I think, three students there at the time. And Wiley starts using the same skills he used in South Africa. In fact, in some ways, his missionary skills were more valuable here than his teaching skills ever were because he joins the Kiwanis Club. He enrolls at the university. He starts taking classes. And pretty soon he's winning more and more faculty over to his side. In fact, even the guy that was appointed to head the committee to not Mormonize the university becomes good friends with Wiley Sessions through the Kiwanis Club. They're at a dinner and this guy who's, his name was Fulton, he turned to Wiley Sessions and said, you son of the gun, you're the darndest fellow. I was appointed on a committee to keep you out of Moscow. And every time I see you, you come in here so darn friendly that I like you better all the time. And Wiley laughs and says, I'm the same way. We just as well be friends. And when he leaves Moscow, the town actually throws like a going away party for him because he's so good at kind of winning people over. Inspired to have sent him there. Yeah. Or the Lord knew what he was doing. Yeah. Isn't it remarkable to see how the most unlikely of candidates somehow goes on to achieve almost the impossible or at least the, the unexpected? Yeah, and it's interesting how as he wins people over to his side, it becomes very collaborative. Like the name Institute of Religion didn't come from a Latter-day Saint. 
there was a guy at the university named Jay Eldridge, who was a professor of German language and literature. He became very, very good friends with Wiley Sessions. And one day they were walking along and he just turned to him and said, you know what you should name this? You should name it the Latter-day Saint Institute of Religion. And he did that with the idea that eventually there would be a Methodist Institute of Religion and a Baptist Institute of Religion, all at the university, all designed to help students do exactly what the Institute program does to maintain their faith while they're at the university. Now, as far as I know, nobody ever does any other thing. There is a branch of Catholicism that has something similar to Seminaries and Institutes of Religion, but the Latter-day Saint Institute of Religion is really the only fruit that comes out of that. But the name comes from a non-Latter-day Saint, interestingly enough. That is so interesting. I just love learning about all of this additional context that we don't get from the chapter. At this time, what were some of the guiding principles of how Institute should function and what it should accomplish? When it comes to the philosophy of Institute, while Sessions is in Moscow kind of laying the groundwork for the Institute, Adam Benyon, who's the head of church education, resigns, and he's replaced by a guy named Joseph F. Merrill. He's a professor from the University of Utah. He's the head of the School of Engineering and Mines there. And there's a series of letters back and forth between the two of them that really sort of establishes what they want institutes to do. Now, part of the backstory here is that Joseph Merrill, who's the first native Utah to get a PhD, studied at Johns Hopkins in the East. And while he was a college student, almost left the church. He had some serious issues. And it was partially because he didn't have anywhere to go to get help. There was only one other Latter-day Saint student at the university he was studying at. And he writes a series of letters to his wife where he talks about really struggling with his faith. Well, 30 years later, when Merrill's been a college professor and now head of church education, he really wants Institute to do what he didn't have anybody to do for him when he was in college. So he writes to Wiley Sessions. Here's one of the things that he writes. He said, when our young people go to college and study science and philosophy and all their branches, they're inclined to become materialistic to forget God, and to believe that the knowledge of men is all-sufficient. Can the truths of science and philosophy be reconciled with religious truths? And then later on in the letter, he says, Personally, I'm convinced that religion is as reasonable as science, that religious truths and scientific truths nowhere are in conflict, that there is one great unifying purpose extending throughout all creation, that we're living in a wonderful, though at the present time deeply mysterious world, and that there's an all-wise, all-powerful creator back of it all. Can this same faith be developed in the mind of our collegiate and university students? Our collegiate institutes are established as a means to this end. And so Merrill was basically directing Wiley Sessions to sit down with them and work out directly how what they were learning in their college classroom did not have to cancel out what they were learning in their church classroom. Institute wasn't quite church and it wasn't quite a university. It was supposed to be a bridge between the two where they could have a trusted leader male or female leader, sit down with them and explain how what they were learning in college wasn't invalidating everything they were taught from the time they were, were little children in the church. Well, thank you for that. And I love that explanation of Institute as being like a bridge, which I think is something that it's continued to try and be for many Latter-day Saints. Well, Casey, Kenneth, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast, giving us all of this extra insight into Wiley Sessions, the church education system, and so much more. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 
We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.